We are in Zechariah chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 this morning. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord is very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So for those of you who have read through Zechariah, and you, some of you have communicated the um, not displeasure with me choosing this book, um, you've got to know some things. I mean, I, I don't just randomly go, hey, how about we try this one? Um, I, I do seek the counsel of God and, and try to move in such a way that the scriptures are, are clarified and honored. And Zechariah is, is a, uh, an Old Testament prophetic book that comes right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, if even though chronologically it's it's separated by 500 some odd years, um, the teaching. If, for those of you who were here for 35 weeks, you know we end the Sermon on the Mount. We just go, okay, what's next? This will take those teachings, and and by God's grace, if we can listen, and, and we need to listen. Um, you say, are you going to are you going to get to the sermon? I will. Um, I was talking with my wife and a few of my sons, and we, we watched a movie over the break, and it was two and a half hours in length. And there was no problem watching that movie. I mean, just riveted to the movie for two and a half hours. And I thought, this is so pathetic. I mean, it's that we can sit and watch, and it wasn't even a very good movie, okay? We can sit and watch... A pretty pathetic movie for two and a half hours. And, and afterwards tell you all the plot and the details and the characters and everything. And yet we struggle hearing God's word for more than 30 minutes. Now I know. I know I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. I know that. I know that I do not communicate God's word all that well. But by his grace and mercy we should be able to come for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours and go, what does God have to say to us? And unless I'm totally screwing it up, we should be fed by it. Zechariah is hard. So if you want a quick, easy, you know, let's get... This is not it. This is not the study. This is certainly not the book. And it's going to take us some time to get through it. I have targeted right now about 28 weeks, give or take five here and there. I have no idea. So we've got to be patient. We were patient with the Sermon on the Mount. And by God's grace, we grew from it. I grew from it tremendously. I pray you did as well. But this requires you to be of sober mind. It requires you to be rested on Sunday morning. It requires you not to come in here convoluted, thinking about all the things that you have to do afterwards that you were doing before. You must come in here with a desire to worship. And that means to hear God. And that means to respond to God in light of what he said, that you now understand what he's saying. In other words, I can work all week 
and study and pray and write and then preach. And unless you come in desiring, ready to hear God and sit with sober mind and open ears for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half or whatever time God gives me to preach, there will be no transformation of character. It's like having that conversation with someone who's not listening and the conversation's not happening. It's not a dialogue. It's a monologue, right? This can't be a monologue. It must be a dialogue. And it's not me talking to you. It's God talking through me to you. Does that make sense? Okay. So if we can do two and a half hours of a bad movie, we should be able to do an hour plus of God's word. Yes? Okay. That means when I see you going like this and your eyes begin to droop, listen, if your eyes begin to droop, sit up. Bite your tongue. I mean, really, you know, when you're driving down I-5 and you begin to get tired, what do you do? I'm just going to take a little nap. No, what do you do? You roll down the window, you turn on the radio, you say, hey, talk to me, please. I'm falling asleep, we're going to crash and die, right? We do the same thing here. We stay awake. We make ourselves, I get it. It's Sunday morning. We sing. It's warm. I talk. We sleep. I get that. I do. But we can't. So, let's begin, shall we? Let's begin what Paul called the foolishness of preaching. And it is... (laughs) I wouldn't want to listen to me. So I get it. I get it, okay? This is hard. This is hard to listen to. Zechariah is going to communicate to us the very word that God gave him audibly. And if we have any desire to hear God speak to us through him, then we will listen with all of our ears and all of our might. And we're going to start by not starting. Yeah, well, so I, I had Kurt read verses 1 through 6 because I had no passage because we're not going to start there. I've got to go back. It's like one of those things where you say, how do you just jump into the minor prophet? How do I just jump into 520 B.C. without everybody going, what are you talking about? Where are we talking about? Who? So I've I got to go back, and I'm going to go back. I'm going to go way back. And this morning is purely an introduction. Okay? And by God's grace, we'll hear the gospel in it. And then next week we will start and we will look in depth at verses 1 through 6 or maybe 1 and 2 or maybe just 1. But we'll try that. And and hopefully see that this kingdom that Zechariah and the people of Israel that we're trying to rebuild is now as well. I mean, we live in a broken time and and this message is so pertinent to postmodern life and life in this country. You know, when Christ came in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that he came to usher in the kingdom, to give us these teachings and these warnings and this power in the Holy Spirit, to live kingdom lives, to live in the midst of the darkness and the chaos, to draw us out, to literally draw us out of that darkness and make us children of light, a holy priesthood, right? Just the Bible says. Zechariah's time, God's doing that thing physically. He's drawing them out of Babylon, darkness. And he's bringing them home, back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, back to their city, back to their homes. So they can once again be a people of light and not darkness. And so he begins this incredible rebuilding process. And so this morning, what I'd like to do, I'd like to lay, I'm just going to do some pouring here. We're going to dig some ditches. That's all we're going to do this morning. I'm not going to bring in rebar. We're not going to pour any cement yet. Okay? We're just going to dig, you know, some trenches, maybe put up some forms. 
to build a foundation. So that when we get to Zechariah 1, we go, okay, that's what he's talking about. That's the time period. That's his life. That's what he was doing. Okay, so be patient with me this morning in this introduction. So let's look this morning at the cosmic narrative of the Bible. The big story. The, the ultimate story. I want to look at that first. And then we'll drop our altitude down a bit and we'll look at the post-exilic story of Zechariah, what was taking place at that time. And then we'll drop our altitude right down to ground zero and we'll examine ourselves in light of the big story and Zechariah's story, our own story. Where does it fit? Does it fit at all? Who am I in the midst of all this? So first, let's look at point number one, the cosmic narrative, the big story. And it is a story. And I know some of us still struggle with the concept of the Bible being a story. And I know why. When I was at seminary, they had just instituted a brand new class that every single major had to take. And it didn't matter what your degree of study was, you had to take this class. And it was storytelling the Bible. And I remember when I first heard it, I thought, oh, come on. I mean, really? Storytelling the Bible? You know, I mean, I, I wanted theology, I wanted systematic theology, biblical theology, the Greek, the Hebrew, I wanted the, the bits and pieces, and I wanted it to all make sense. And then I took the class, and I realized what an idiot I was. My cynicism, which many of my fellow seminarian cynicism played into as well, up till the 19th and 20th centuries, the Old Testament, the New Testament... They were taught in the context of a grand narrative of the, this cosmic ultimate story that God is the author of. I mean, you had, you had all the pieces. You had the theology. You had the systematic, the scientific, the apologetic, the ethical. And that's all there and it should be there and it's good to be there. But in the 20th century especially, but it started the 19th, there was this movement in theology programs, which eventually became religion programs. No more theology. We just do religion today, especially in secular schools to try to get away from the story aspect of it because it wasn't that empirical. It wasn't that scientific. It needed to match and have greater weight. And so we lost the narrative. By God's grace, at the end of the 20th century, and now, seminarians are being required to learn the story of the Bible. The beginning, the middle, and the end. And they're able to not only know it, but then teach it. The hard part I think that I struggled with most is that when we use the word story, we, I, I anyway, I think fiction. And I don't like that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thrust back to a six-year-old sitting in a circle around my first grade teacher and she's reading the book to us, right? When I think of story, I think of story time and fiction time. And I think many of the people at seminary struggle with that too. But when we look at the Bible, I mean... Outside the church, many people think the Bible is just a nice story. And not so nice in certain parts if they even understand it, right? But a story nonetheless. Mythological. What we know is that the Bible is a story, but it's historical. It's real. A real God, a real creation, real people, saved and unsaved, real providential work, God moving through human history. And so we don't see a fictional story like the Greek mythology or like Eastern mysticism. We see an historical movement by God's hand in his creation to make things right. Why? Because we screwed it up. I mean, we fundamentally made a mess of God's great story. Now, at its most basic level, you can teach the story in creation, good, fall, bad, redemption, good, right? Creation, fall, redemption. And there are lots of 
structures underneath that. And there are several ways that people have broke it down. One, by a man by the name of Von Roberts. And it's a book we're actually going to study in the Titus 1 series. And he breaks it down into eight pieces. And you have it in your outline. And I, I promise, I'm just going to touch on these. If you want to know them in detail, go read the book. It's called uh, The Big Picture by Von Roberts. But he breaks it down in a wonderful way. I, it was easy for me to understand. And so I thought, maybe I could possibly teach it. He talks about these eight categories. The pattern of the kingdom the perished kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfected kingdom. All P's. I could never do that. So let's start with first, scene one. Right? So this is a story. Scene one. You have the pattern of the kingdom. You have the garden of Eden. You have God creating the heavens and the earth. You have God making Adam and Eve in his own image. And you have him placing those two people in the garden. To know him and to be known by him. To worship him. To receive his glory and to reflect that glory back to him. And it was so good. He even says in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made and it was what? It was very good. Perfect. I mean, it was just right. No sin, no death, no war, no disease, no heartache, no anxiety. No bad two and a half hour movies, right? It was kingdom life. Seeing God in the presence of God, receiving his glory, reflecting that glory back. Scene two, you have the parish kingdom, right? The curtains close, the curtains open up again, and what do you have? It's the fall, right? This is the part that no one likes. This is the part that made a mess of everything for all human beings and all of human history. Adam and Eve, as a result, all mankind... Because they are our parents. They thought they could live a better life. I mean, really, they fundamentally thought, we can live independent of God. We can live this better. We can do this in a better way. We don't need to listen to what he said. We're going to change that. And as a result, like all of mankind since, doing what they wanted to do, as they wanted to do it, when they wanted to do it, does that not sound like our culture today? What was the result? They turned away from God. And God, the giver and sustainer of their life, turned away from them. And they, they were cast out of the garden. They were, they were cast out of his presence. I mean, the most extraordinary part of the fall is that they were removed from the immediate, personal, intimate relationship with the living God. And they were cast out. But it wasn't just they were removed. They suffered the consequences of disobeying God, right? The consequences of the fall is that they left his teachings, they left his blessings, they left his presence for a curse. What was that curse? To Adam, God said in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. He was cursed with hard labor and death. That was the curse. Eve wasn't any better. To experience pain during childbearing and to live in submission to her husband who was cursed. Not good. So rather than enjoying the immediate presence of God, rather than following the laws of God, in his presence, they got judgment and eternal death. Curtains closed, they open back up again. Scene three, you have the promised kingdom. I mean, the storyline at this point, (laughs) this is, we could end at the end of scene two and you have the perfect postmodern movie, right? I mean, that's it, right? God created it, it was good. Man fell, it was bad. The end. That's a terrible story. We go to those, and I know that they, they're, they're academy acclaimed. I know that Hollywood loves them. But everybody walks out going, terrible ending. Why? 
What resonates in the heart of man is not that ending. It's not the fall. It's not destruction. It's redemption. It's restoration. It's things being made right. And they live happily ever after. That's the ending you want. Are you, are you just, are you not like that? I hate the postmodern ending. I'm like, Ugh. where's the director's alternative endings? I want that one instead. I want redemption. So God comes in, scene three, because this is not a good story up to this point. And by his radical grace, he intervenes back in the mess that we've made. And he calls a pagan man by the name of Abraham out of the darkness. And he makes a covenant with Abraham saying, listen, you you guys screwed it up. It's a a total mess. But I'm going to intervene and I'm going to make it right. And this is the covenant that he made with Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Now listen, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In other words, he's coming back and saying, listen, you broke the relationship with me. You sinned against me. You rebelled against me. But I, by my own initiative, out of my radical mercy and love, I'm going to come and I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to make things right. And I will be your God again and you will be my people. And he makes that promise to Abraham and all those who are descendants of Abraham. And we know that, according to the Bible, is those who have placed their faith in Christ. To draw us out of sin and out of the darkness. And this is the foundation of the gospel of grace. That God makes his covenant with man to save mankind from ruining ourselves. The curtains close, scene four. I'm doing all right time-wise, right? I mean, each of these, I mean, really, we could do... Few hours, not a problem. Uh, Scene four, the partial kingdom. The partial kingdom. In the next section of the Bible, and this takes up the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, really, you know, you have the, the Genesis chapter 15, and then the rest of the Old Testament is made up of this partial kingdom. At least up until the split of the kingdom. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me step back. So, God through Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 children. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They grow to be a mighty nation within the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh says, this is not good. Get get them out. This is not good, right? So they leave by God's miraculous hand. You all know the story of the Exodus, right? Through Moses, they're let out. They spend 40 years in the desert. In the desert, they get the law. Why? Because the law told them, the people, how to worship God again. How to live in a right relationship with this holy God. And so they receive the law and then through Joshua they enter the land and then they subdue the people. And we have the really dark time of the judges. And then we get to King Saul who is not so good. And then we get to King David and it culminates in King Solomon. And what do you have? I mean within Solomon's reign you have one of the most glorious, magnificent, powerful kingdoms in the history of the world. Under Solomon. And people looked and said, there's something here. This is a partial fulfillment of this promise that was obviously made to Abraham centuries earlier. Fulfillment. But only partial. Because in light of the magnitude of the kingdom of David and Solomon, there was still what? There was still the problem of sin. Right? We still have this terrible issue of man's sin and God being a holy God. So the problem hadn't been dealt with. It was only partially revealed in the kingdom. And we know that because scene four ends and scene five comes and that is the prophesied kingdom and everything gets sideways. I mean, you know, with David 
And then, of course, there's Bathsheba. And then Solomon. And we don't even say anything about I mean, it's just, it becomes a mess, right? And as a result of the curse, it leads down to the division of the kingdom. And so you have civil war within God's people. Civil war. These are, these are people of the same bloodline. These are cousins. They were fighting against cousins. And it became such that, that you had the tribes in the north that became Israel. They split off. They went north. And then you had, you, know, you had Benjamin. You had Judah in the south. And they formed a separate kingdom in the south. And so you had two separate kingdoms within the same people. Both sinning against God. And then... In light of all the prophecy, both before, during, and after, you have the fall of these kingdoms. And it repeats the fall from God's grace in the garden. Leading up to and then culminating in 712 BC, the, the, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrian Empire. Right? Leading up to and then culminating in 586 BC, you have Judah, you have Jerusalem falling to the Babylonian Empire. And now, what's so extraordinary, during this time, so you have both before, during, and after these cataclysmic events in the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen people. You have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and, and Ezekiel prophesying to all this, saying, this is what's going to happen. Turn and repent. This is what's going to happen. And they didn't listen. And judgment came. And these prophets revealed the gravity of their sins. And they revealed the the need to return and repent and put their hope in God. But they also did something incredible. They also said, listen, there's a future king who's going to come. There's a future hope that's not what you're seeing right now. And during this prophesied kingdom, what's so extraordinary to me is that God continued to communicate with the people who were fundamentally rebellious. And at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, the city's torn down, the temple's torn down, what looked like hopelessness, God is still breathing hope through the prophets. He's saying, it's not over yet. This is not the last scene of my story. And then what happens? Malachi and 400 years of quiet. And surely, during that 400 years, many people were thinking, especially the Jews, the story's gone bad. And then something miraculous happens. The curtains close. Scene 6, the present kingdom. You arrive at the New Testament. And you hear the last Old Testament prophet who is John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist. I know you say Malachi. It was really John the Baptist. And he came as Christ came. And he said what? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The present kingdom at hand. Christ the king had come. To do what? To fulfill the covenant, to make right the mess, to deal fundamentally with our sin, the problem of sin that separates us from God. God the Father sent the king to earth. The second person of the holy triune God became a man. And he walked and he breathed and he ate and he slept and he wept and he served and he ministered to us. And we know that he was God because he lived a sinless life. They testify to that. He taught like no other man. Remember we ended this sermon on the mount? Like no other man. He taught with authority. He did miracles that no mere man could do. And then the ultimate test was displayed on the cross, right? He died. And then he didn't remain dead. He got up. He rose from the dead. 
And then he revealed and he spoke to over 540 days. And then he ascended to the heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. He came in humility and submission and weakness. And this was the means by which he chose to deal with the problem of sin with mankind. He brought the kingdom to earth. Paul writes in Colossians 1, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things that fell in the garden centuries before. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so now the story starts to come full circle here. And instead of being hopeless and despondent, Christ comes and he breathes hope into it. And then he ascends into heaven. And you're like, wait a minute, where are you going? Right? Even the disciples are, where are you going? The curtains close. Scene seven, the proclaimed kingdom. Jesus Christ on the cross did everything that was necessary to restore mankind. Everything. It was complete. His work was good. It was complete. And yet, you and I can testify to what? We still got issues. There's still sin. There's still brokenness. There's still heartache. There's still death. There's still disease. There's still rebellion. What's going on here? If he has all the ability to fix it, why isn't he fixing it? Faster, God. Faster. Through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God opens the door, gives us access back in. In other words, it's not the grand finale. Our Lord's coming the first time, his first advent, not the grand finale. It's the end to the grand finale, right? That's why the Bible says we're living when? In the last days. He set in motion the culmination of his return. And what he set in motion was the gospel of grace. To go out to the lost, to reveal sin to mankind, and give us hope in his work. To call us back in. I'm glad that God hasn't come back yet. Why? Because those of us who do not know him, those friends and loved ones, they have a chance to be saved. What did, what did Peter say? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I, it's been what? 2,000 years? One of my boys this week, we were talking, he goes, it's been a long time. I said, God said, a thousand years like a day, a day's like a thousand years. No big deal to God. I mean, really? Two days. Two days. Two days. He's patient. Praise God that he's patient. Because he wants none to perish. And so we live now in the proclaimed time. This is our time, right? This is the time that we are to be living in light and by the power of the gospel of grace. To live holy lives. To be a holy people. To be a holy church. And do what? And proclaim the gospel of grace. To whom? To anyone who doesn't know him. To your friends. To your family. To those people in your cubicle that you sit three feet from. Maybe closer. The proclaimed kingdom we are called to engage in. As we wait, what? The scene will close. They haven't yet. The curtain's still open on scene seven. But one day, those curtains will close and it will open again and it will be scene eight and it will be the final. It will be the last part of God's story. In J.R.R. Tolkien's last book, of the Lord of the Rings series. What's the title of it? The return of the king. That last scene will be the return of our king. 
And that's what we wait for now in great anticipation. When the Bible says Jesus Christ will come in all the glory of his Father and all of his angels. And he's going to come back. He's going to come back with all of the angelic hosts. And what's he going to do? What's he going to do? For some, it's going to be magnificent. For others, really bad. He's going to come and he's going to judge. He's going to, the Bible says he's going to raise the living and the dead. And all of mankind will stand before him. And he will do this great separation between the wheat and the chaff and the sheep and the goat and those on the left and those on the right. And he's going to sift out. And those that do not know him, it will be a day unlike any other day where God says to you, I never knew you. You still rebel against me just like your father Adam and Eve. You still hate me. And he will cast them out into the other darkness where there's the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth. And then for the redeemed, he will say, you who know my son, who love my son, who have followed my son. He says, come on, enter my rest. And he's going to stay. He's not going to then go back and go, all right, scene nine. There is no scene nine. It ends with his coming to earth. We always talk about going to heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about heaven coming to earth. God coming down. New earth, new heaven, new Jerusalem, new you, new body. New worship in Him. His presence. That day, the prophets prophesied to. That day, we are to proclaim to the world. John describes it as such. Listen carefully from Revelation 21. John said that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You talk about a great story. This is real. This is not first grade. We're not sitting around. This is real. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you see what's happened. We've come full circle. Right? We had the intimate presence of God in the garden. And then we sinned and we rebelled and we turned against him. And for all these centuries now, we've been moving back to that day when he comes again in glory. And he restores it. But it's not like the garden. It's better. Infinitely better. And then we dwell in his presence for how long? Forever and ever and ever. Worshipping him. The grand biblical narrative is anything but fictional. And it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. This is the narrative. This is what is transpiring. This is the movement of a holy God engaged in a radical love story. And it is a love story. I mean, it's a rescue story, right? He, he made it. It was good. And we, we sinned against him. And we committed adultery and idolatry and, and hatred against God. And he says, listen, I'm going to love you in the midst of it. And then he comes and it's a rescue story. And he redeems us and he buys us back with his own blood. With his own life. With the greatest sacrifice at all, which was his son. It's a story and it's filled with life and death and promise and heartache and courage and infidelity and war and peace and salvation and condemnation and heaven and hell. It's packed. So I don't get when people don't read the Bible. You've got to be kidding me. 
it's not only the greatest story ever told, it's real. I don't know about you, I, I'm not a big movie guy, but I love it when they say based upon a true story. It just, it draws me in. Why? Because this is not out of someone's mind. This really happened to some degree. But when we read the Bible, this happened to exact degree or will happen to exact degree. The greatest story ever told, and it resonates. Listen, whenever it's told, whenever it's heard, it resonates in the heart of every man because everyone knows it's true. We all know it's true. We may rebel against it. We may hate it. We may, but we know deep down this is the ultimate story. And that's why we hate postmodern endings to movies. We do. Pulp Fiction, terrible ending. Fargo, terrible ending. Why? Not the right story. Not the cosmic story. Point two. Ready? The post-exilic narrative of Zechariah. The story within the story, right? So you have this grand, overarching Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, big story. And it's huge. And of course, I just did complete injustice to it, talking about it in 15 minutes. Zechariah, which I want us to see, is a story within the bigger story, right? He's a sliver, a piece, his time in history. And so now that we see the large melodic line, the large story, the love story of redemption in Christ, let's, let's, let's drop down a bit. You know, let's go from 50,000 feet down to like 15,000 feet and drop down and zoom in in particular on this book, which was a time, if you look at your handout, it was in the, the fifth scene, the prophesied kingdom. This is when we see, it's actually at the end of that kingdom uh, that was taking place. And what I want to do over the next few minutes is look at the historical and contextual setting of Zechariah. Right? Because Zechariah is hard enough, but if we don't know what's going on, impossible to understand. Impossible. So let's, let's look patiently. Because some of you are saying, just go to verse 1 and start preaching. Okay? Don't be so impatient. Don't be so impatient. I mean, so, not to keep going back to Tolkien, but he did, in the Lord of the Rings series, he did three movies, right? And then he comes back and he's doing The Hobbit, which was one book, and he's doing three movies from the one book, which is really the introduction to the Lord of the Rings series. And yet we're patient with The Hobbit, which is like a three-hour movie. So we can be patient here, understanding the historical context of Zechariah. Biblical hermeneutics. How many of you have heard that word before? Hermeneutics. Don't, don't use it with your unsaved friends. It just will cause their eyes to spin around. It's a, really simply, it's understanding clearly what the Bible's saying, right? In its most fundamental sense, knowing what the Bible actually says according to the authors and the Holy Spirit. Fundamental rule in biblical hermeneutics. Any passage, any verse, any book must be understood, one, in the context of the grand story, which you now know. The cosmic story of God. And two, it must be understood in the historical context in which it was written. So you've got to know the big story, creation, fall, redemption. And you've got to know the story within the story. What was happening at the time that this thing was written? Biblical hermeneutics at its most basic level. So we're going to do that. In this outline, at the end of this prophesied period, the people of, of, of Judah had returned from exile. And it's a time of... And the reason it's so perfect for today, it's a time there was confusion, 
they were disillusioned, they were discouraged, they were self-consumed. It's perfect for today, right? I mean, that's us. That's our culture today. That's our church. Not our church, but our church, right? Discouraged. 66 years before Zechariah prophesied, he prophesied in 520 to 518 BC. 66 years earlier, Judah was still a kingdom. Jerusalem was still a city, and there was still a king. And then a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, most of you learned his name first from the Charlie Brown cartoon, Christmas, right? You heard him say that to the little dusty boy. This could be the dust from Nebuchadnezzar. Who is Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the king of the Babylonian Empire. And he made his way. He really wasn't terribly concerned about Jerusalem or Judah. He was just trying to get to Egypt, and that's the way he had to go. So he conquered Jerusalem as well. And he came in, and this had all been prophesied before the destruction. Jeremiah, one of the reasons Jeremiah is so loved as a prophet reading it, is he proceeded and lived in the midst of this destruction. That's why his nickname is the Weeping Prophet. I mean, he prophesied to it, and then he saw it take place in his own life. Listen to what he said before Nebuchadnezzar moved in. He writes in Jeremiah chapter 1, the beginning of his prophecy, verses 14 through 16, The Lord said from the north, that's Babylon actually northeast, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land of Judah. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people, God said, because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. And so we're in that really dark time of, of the prophesied period where the people had turned from God and they were worshiping idols, actively engaged in the worship of false gods. And God kept calling them to the prophets. He, I mean, Israel fell first, the northern kingdom, in 712. So they saw, they had a, a picture of their brothers sinning against God, rebelling against God, not heeding to the prophecy of Isaiah and falling. So they not only had the prophet saying turn, but they had historical evidence of not turning and the destruction of the northern kingdom. But they did not listen, they did not turn, and Nebuchadnezzar came in and utterly leveled Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is the city of God. Right? I mean, starting back in Exodus, as he leads the people out, and the laws are given, and they make their way into the promised land, <clears throat> and they have the tabernacle, and they build the temple, and the kingdom is glorious under David and Solomon. This glorious, magnificent kingdom is utterly destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Their homes are destroyed. The marketplace is destroyed. Their walls are destroyed. The gates are burned. The city is laid empty. Total destruction. Many of those who were living in Judah at that time were killed. Many others were taken physically into captivity. They were taken away into Babylon. Taken away from their hometown. Taken away from the city of Jerusalem. The promise made to Abraham's descendants, going all the way back to the covenant, to the exodus, to the taking of the land, to the rise of David and Solomon, at this point seemed like a grand lie. Because it was all gone. I mean, there wasn't even a country. There was no city. There was nothing. And all the people were now gone, scattered. Many in the captivity, no doubt, doubted God's truthfulness. They doubted whether or not this covenant was real, that they had believed. This covenant that was made to Abraham and all the descendants of whom they were, 
Whether or not what Moses said was true, of all the promises of Moses, of the, of the Savior coming as Moses testified to, that how could this be true in light of what was taking place? But they were a people much like us, ever hearing, but not perceiving. Jeremiah, again, said, they're in exile, and he said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... This is God. I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And so even in the prophecy, it's right there before their eyes. God's saying, this is, this is not how it's going to end. I know you're in exile. I know the city's destroyed. I know you're, you're despondent right now. And you think that I've left you. But I haven't. So how does God work this out historically? This is historical narrative. It's real. Right? He doesn't just go and pull it out of thin air. He raises a king. I gave one of my sons this quiz this week. He said, all right. Who's the king? Who's the Medo-Persian king that God raises up by name to go in and over, overcome the Babylonians and restore Jerusalem? Who was it? You know who it was. Cyrus the Great in the 6th century as the, uh, as the Persian Empire rose. They finally had the power to overthrow the Babylonians and in turn take back Judah, take back Jerusalem. And then God supernaturally moves through Cyrus and gives Cyrus the heart and the decree to rebuild the temple. This is the pagan king. It's extraordinary. I'll read it to you from Ezra. He tells it better. Are you still with me on the story? Thank you. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word the Lord spoke by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. And this is what Cyrus, pagan king, writes down. Listen, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. What a shock. Any one of his people among you may, uh, any one of you, any any one of his people among you, may his God be with you and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. I mean, it's so incredible. The people are, this is, you know, this is 40 some odd years removed and they're thinking that the nation is destroyed, we're never going back, and then God, through a pagan king, issues a decree from this pagan king to rebuild a temple to worship him and bring the people home out of exile. You think that's incredible? That was Jeremiah. That was Ezra prophesying to all this. At least the conservative scholars, at least 150 years, probably closer to 200 years, the prophet Isaiah not only said this would happen, identified the decree, but he named the king. This kind of stuff, when I was new in my faith, just blew me away. At least 200 years or so before the king, before Cyrus ever issued the decree, Isaiah said, listen, this is what the Lord says, Isaiah 45, the Holy One of Israel. 
It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus. In my righteousness, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Isaiah wrote that 200 years before there was an Assyrian empire, 200 years before Jerusalem had fallen, and 200 years before any man by the name of Cyrus was even known. Extraordinary. Why? It's his story. (laughs) I mean, it's no big deal for God to know how the story ends. Right? I mean, he wrote it. It's his story. How many of you have done this? You read ahead. How many of you read ahead? How many of you are the, yeah, yeah, I know. I can't wait. And you do that. And then you know things. And you go back and go, okay, I know what's going to happen now, right? God wrote the story. He knows the story. It's a big deal for us because it declares his majesty and his glory. But it's no big deal for God to know it was Cyrus and to name him before he ever lived. So per our Lord's plan, in 538 B.C., 48 years after Jerusalem had been utterly destroyed, Sheshbazar, and he was the last king of Judah before the city fell, before the walls came down, Sheshbazar, 42,000 or so exiles, according to the book of Ezra, took the temple articles and money from the king and led the exiles home to Jerusalem. They made their way back out of exile. 538 B.C., and Sheshbazar, he, he started the groundwork by building the temple, the foundation. But we're going to see that it was his nephew, Zerubbabel, great name. I mean, that kid must have been teased so much in school. Zerubbabel, it's even hard. I, and I went for the phonetic on this. No one knows. Zerubbabel, 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 you pick it. It's up to you. Don't email me saying I'm not pronouncing it correctly, though, because I have no idea how it's pronounced. Under Zerubbabel's rule and Joshua the high priest... Which was the direct line. This is so great. So Zerubbabel, who was Sheshbazar's nephew, was in the line of David, king. And Joshua, not old Joshua. This is priest Joshua post-exile. Joshua was in the line of Zadok, the priest, the high priest for David. And so you have returning to Jerusalem a man in the kingly line of Judah and a man in the priestly line. Which is, which is how the story would go, right? It's perfect. It's perfect. And during this time, God raises up Zechariah to to prophesy, to proclaim, to encourage, to rebuke his people that had made their way back to Jerusalem. Zechariah was also from a priestly family. And God raised him up. It's amazing. God raised him up in 520. So 18 years after Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel and Joshua made their way back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 18 years later, this is, you know, if, if you remember when you were young, 18 seemed really old, right? When you were 10, the 18 year olds seemed like they were ancient. So this is, this is a significant period of time. In Zechariah chapter one, verse one, we are told that the, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Now you're going, Darius, who's that character? Where did he, where, I thought it was Cyrus. It was Cyrus. And then it was Cyrus's son, Cambyses. And then Cambyses was he was down in Egypt trying to take Egypt. I mean, the Persian Empire was, was fixated with Egypt. They wanted Egypt. They never succeeded fully. 
And he was making his way back, and supposedly, according to the historical record, Cambyses, who was Cyrus the Great's son, died at Mount Carmel in 522 by suicide. We don't know. Whatever, we do know this. Darius was his general, and he became king. Now, you know Darius from Daniel, right? I mean, that's where you go, oh, I know this Darius character. But we find him here. We find him in, in the, the book of Zechariah. Because Darius took very seriously Cyrus's proclamation and dictate to rebuild the temple. And he looked to Jerusalem and he looked at the temple and he said, what's going on? <clears throat> There's no temple. There's a foundation. And everybody stopped. <clears throat> they stopped building. They stopped working. What happened? Let's, dis- let's dispel a biblical misnomer. In my mind, I used to think that when Cyrus you know, put his decree down that every Jew, then diaspora, came back. And they all came back. But that's not what happened. Ezra said 42,630, 42,000, some number in there, came back. The initial movement, the initial exile return. And then people went, you know, we're getting word that things aren't going all that well. We're going to stay. We're not going home. We're not going to go back to Jerusalem. We're not going to participate in the building of the temple. We're going to stay in Babylon. In fact, they would quote Jeremiah. Because if you remember, Jeremiah told them specifically what? He said, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children, and live peacefully and prosperously in the midst of your Babylonian captors. So they're they're going to listen to what Jeremiah told us here in, in chapter 29 that we're supposed to do this. We're not going anywhere. And so... You had not so many people returning. You had people that, when they left, came in and... If those of you who have read through Ezra and Nehemiah, they just make a mess of things. So you have local politics. You had high taxes by uh, the Persian Empire because they were still trying to take Egypt. So the time of the rebuilding, they started off great. I mean, they did. They came in and there was great enthusiasm, as with most things in our lives. Think about that when you make your New Year's resolution. And they come in and they start building. They lay the foundation and then... Everything stops. Everything stops. For 18 years, there's no more work on the temple. It stays in its destructed state. So God raises up Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai, they they go hand in hand. Haggai was first. And Haggai really, I mean, his primary focus was build the temple. Build the temple. What do you want us to do? Build the temple. Zechariah comes in and he says, he talks about the building of the temple, but he talks about a life of faith. And he talks about the, the internal, internal kingdom life that they've been called to live and a relationship with the living God. Haggai, I'll give you a passage from Haggai to show you what his prophetic message was. This is from Haggai chapter 1. This is what the Lord Almighty says, according to Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the temple so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Listen to this. Because of my house, his temple, which remains a ruin. This is 18 years after they returned. It remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. A little remodeling going on. Therefore, God said, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. In other words, the people, again, were fundamentally disobeying God. He said, go back and build a temple. And they said, we'll start. 
And then they stopped. And they did, what did they do? They got focused on them. Their homes, their markets. They didn't even, they didn't even rebuild the walls. So the, the city's in utter ruin. And God says, all right, if that's how we're going to have this play out, then I will withhold the rain and the dew, and I will not bless your vineyards, and I will not bless your cattle. And so not only during this time do you have discouragement, there's drought, there's famine. This is a tough time in the nation of Israel. Tough time in Jerusalem. God had become secondary rather than primary. And so God calls Zechariah, and he raises him up, and he says, tell the people, tell them what's going on. Explain to them why I brought you back. Explain to them why I'm asking you to rebuild this temple. Explain to them why I've called you to this place to worship me. Explain it. And then he gives them the words. And and Zechariah prophesied from 520 to 518, roughly two years. Story within the story. Got the big story, creation, fall, redemption. We have the story within the story, Zechariah, post-exile, Babylonian exiles returning, trying to rebuild the city. Not doing a very good job. I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. Right? You have famine. You have drought. You have discouragement. The temple's still in shambles. It's a mess. It's a mess. Point number three, your personal narrative in all this. How do we hear this and not go, nice history lesson, pastor. Did you ever teach history? Very nice. How do we, where, where do we see ourselves in this? I mean, how does this make sense to us more than a nice historical story? Even if we believe it's true, even if we believe it's God's redemptive plan, how do I see myself in it? How do you see you in it? How do we see our church in it? Now, let's take a look at point number three. Are you still with me? Say amen if you're still listening. Praise God. You didn't just lie, did you? (laughs) Judah's post-exile life during the time of Zechariah. Incredible parallels to us now. Incredible parallels. 20 years, essentially, they were back and not serving God faithfully. For 20 years. I imagine how hard it would have been in the conviction of those people as they worked really hard to get their house all nice and tidy. Brand new wood floors, new carpeting, new drapes, new blinds. And they looked over their shoulder and there sat the temple of God still in ruin. For 20 years. They worried about themselves, their families, their homes, their markets at the expense of God. Disobedient. They had a great start, but they didn't finish. Much initial enthusiasm. And it sputtered out. And they became complacent. They became disobedient. And ultimately, they became discouraged. And... You can see, I mean, you can sympathize in the context of all that, right? I mean, there's, there's famine, there's a drought, there are high taxes, there are internal political issues, local issues. They, they, there aren't that many, not many that have returned. You can see why they would say, you know what? This God did not return with us. I mean, where is he? Where are the great works that we hear that, are, that he, he did for our forefathers? I mean, yeah, he spoke through Cyrus, and yeah, we're back, but where is he? And you could see that in the midst of that, how easily it would have been for them to say that God is no longer here. The promise is not real. That we've been sent to this place and it's pointless to erect a temple to worship a God who has forsaken us. I mean, 
That's easy for me to see in my own life. How easy it would have been in the context of their chaos and hardship. Because it looks like they went from the fire into the frying pan. They went from darkness to darkness. Right? Now we know that it was a result of their disobedience. But you know, 20 years go by and you begin to think, well maybe God's not in it at all. And so what did they do? Same thing that we do. They turned away from God, they turned to themselves. Right? It became about them. That, how can I have my best life now? If God's not here, that's worth laughing, thank you. If, if God's not here, how can I live my best life now? Forget about the temple, my house, my children, my family. I'll watch my back. But I'm not going to think about God. I'm not going to think about God's community. I'm certainly not going to think about God's city or being a light. I'm just going to take care of myself. And this is where Zechariah comes in. And his words are cutting. And he comes in. He comes along Ezra. And he comes along Nehemiah. And he comes along Haggai. And he's another voice crying out in the darkness saying, You got it all wrong. Everything's upside down. You're not seeing it clearly. And he does a few things here. I'm just going to touch on them because we're going to go into detail on them. But let me just show you a few things. He comes back and he redirects their focus. Back to God. Right? I mean, he takes their focus, which is on themselves, their houses, their marketplaces, and he says, your focus needs to be back here. And he does so in several ways. I'll just give you a few this morning to wet your palate. He talks about the historical and consequential nature of their father's rebellion. And he starts right off in chapter 1. You heard it read by Kurt this morning. He deals with this disillusioned, disobedient state by redirecting it to God as a result of their disobedience. Listen to what he says. Verse 4, Zechariah 1. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. The forefathers refused. What happened? They went away. Zechariah is saying, don't do as they did. He reminds them of not only their need to be faithful to the living God who brought them out of Babylon and brought them back to Jerusalem, but to live a holy life. I mean, it's so Sermon on the Mount kingdom-esque. Chapter 7. The word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is right out of our Lord's mouth in the New Testament. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. If that's not Sermon on the Mount, I don't know what it is. Live holy lives. Don't be rebellious like your forefathers. Live holy lives. And then in chapter 8, it's fantastic. He says, don't forget that in the midst of all this chaos and all the darkness and all the problems and the taxes and the politics, God is here, even though you don't see it. In chapter 8, the Lord Almighty said, To Zechariah, I am very jealous for Zion. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire book. I am burning with jealousy for her. He said, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Listen. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. 
this is what the Lord Almighty says. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Zechariah saying, he's here. He's going to restore all of it. He's going to make sense of the madness and the chaos. He's going to restore families that have been broken. In Zechariah chapter 3, he reminds them that one day, they too will be washed clean of all their sin. Zechariah talks about it in the context of the high priest Joshua, but applies to all of us, since you are all priests in Christ. Zechariah chapter 3, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. You'll be cleansed. Zechariah saying, don't you know this? This God whom you're being called to worship will cleanse you and wash you. And if that's not enough, if him saying, don't be foolish like your forefathers, don't neglect the presence of God, don't neglect this great washing, don't neglect the restoration that's to come, if that's not enough, he says, there's one coming who's going to make it all right. I said last week, and I'll say it again, and probably 20 more times in this series, so forgive me. Zechariah is hardly a book that's veiled. Of all the Old Testament books that point to Christ, Zechariah is like, I'm taking off the veil and I'm talking directly to Christ. In fact, you can't read Zechariah without seeing Christ clearly. In Zechariah 6, the prophet said, Here is the man whose name is the branch And he will branch out from this holy place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. It's Christ. It's Christ. Zechariah is calling the people back to right worship. Back to holy living. Back to action. To be a holy people that proclaim the good news. Then telling us now. So when you reflect upon your life, either before you came to a saving grace in Christ or in the midst of your saving grace in Christ, I mean, do you identify with this post-exilic Jerusalem? More mess, more chaos, and more destruction than holiness and obedience to God. More dreams unfulfilled and seeming promises unkept than the life you thought you were going to live. The person that you thought you were going to be. A life more about you, your way, your desires, and your things than God's will, his ways, his desires, and his nation. If this is your story, like mine, then Zechariah is your book. Because he talks to the people in the context of their chaos and their discouragement and their disobedience and their sin. He talks to them and reveals to them this magnificent calling back to God. I don't don't know of a more pertinent Old Testament prophecy for today, for us as a church, for our country than this. This is God's story, it's his narrative. It's fascinating. I'm not going to go off on this because it's a tangent, but the author of a fictional book 
sits down and pens it. But it's just the story that's come out of their mind. God has penned this story of creation. And it's real. It's real. And you, whether you know it or not, have taken an active role in this storyline. You have a part. And it's been assigned to you before the foundations of the world. Your name, your birth, your parents, your education or lack of education, your job, your, all of this has been written down. Zechariah is speaking to you as he's speaking to me, as he's speaking to every person who declares the name Christian, who declares themselves a follower of Christ. And so the question the consummate question that I want to resonate for the next several weeks is, what part am I playing in this cosmic story? What role am I playing in light of these truths? You got three roles, three options. And I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing some radical reductionism here, so forgive me. But there are really three. There are more, but I'll give you three. You're unsaved. You're part of God's story. But you're just like Adam and Eve. You think that you have a better way. You think you have more answers. You don't like what God has to say. You continue in your sin and rebellion. You continue to be at enmity with the creator of the universe. And you think that your way and your life and your wisdom is better than his. You're in the story. But your ending is bad. You'll see stage, you'll see the eighth scene when the curtains open, when Christ comes again in all his glory, and you will cry out for the rocks to fall upon you. Because that day will be a dreadful day for you. Why? Because you'll be called before the Lord, and called to give an account of your whole life. And sins that you don't even know you committed, too numerous to count, will be displayed as the books are open. And there'll be no covering. There'll be no answer other than guilty. And God will say to you, away from you, worker of iniquity, and he'll cast you out. He will cast you into hell, which is the ultimate consequence of the fall. But there's no redemption at the end of that story. Hell lasts forever and ever. That's not the part you want. You know, when, I don't know, when you were a kid and they had, you know, a stage production at your school and they're, they're passing out parts, all right, you have the lead male, you have the lead female, you have the person going to hell. Oh, that's me. I, no one wants that part. It's the wrong one. And yet many are on it. There's another part. Saved. By God's grace. As the Bible says, predestined before the foundation of the world. He chose you. Why? According to his wise counsel. You're saved. But you may be just like those in the day of Zechariah who returned to Jerusalem with the dictate to rebuild the temple and you turned your eyes to your own house and your own job and your own family and your own things. And you profess Christ and by his grace you know him and by his grace you're saved. But you're not living in submission to him. You are saved but still living as though you're not. This is not a wise role to choose either. This is precarious and it lacks power. 
Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a passage that many people in the church hate. He talks about the builder who builds his house on the rock of Christ, the wise builder. And then he says, he tells us that when that man's life is tested, and every one of our lives will be tested by fire, he said that man's life will be burned up if he does not build his life on Christ. He said he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Saved, but nothing to show in the redeemed life. That's not a part you want either. You said, but at least I'm saved, better than the unsaved. Absolutely. But how pathetic. I'm saved, but I'm going to enter through the flames and come out with nothing. You're not going to hear Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to go, really? Your whole life? There's a third part. And this is the part that everybody wants to raise their hand and say, that's the part I want to live. This is the part that Zechariah is calling us to. This is the part that all the prophets are calling us to. It's someone who is in saved submission to Christ. Saved and in submission. Saved and lovingly obedient. Saved and following the Savior. Under God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, submitting to God's laws. Adam and Eve did not obey God. And they suffered the consequences. All of mankind. God calls people back to him, to his city, to his kingdom, to live holy lives. What does that mean? Submitting to his laws. Knowing his teachings. Desiring them. Not perfectly. Striving for perfection, yes. What did Christ say? You're to be perfect as my father is perfect. Striving. Sinning, yes, of course. That's why the Bible says, confess confess your sins. Confess them. We're going to keep sinning. Confess. Mortify. Put it to death. Grow in Christ. Grow in community. A life lived in light of the great work of the king. And he came to set up that kingdom. To teach to it. To reveal to it. To warn those who are not going to submit. And then to give us the power in the Holy Spirit to live it. To live it out. To put all your hope in that suffering servant. There's a great passage also which we'll look at in Zechariah 9. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foil donkey. So I know that. That's Christ when he entered Jerusalem. Yes. To die. It means that you will embrace the grace and mercy that Jesus Christ poured out from the cross. And this is how you will live. Under the constant reminder of the infinite sacrifice that Jesus Christ made to redeem you from the pit of hell. This is how you'll live. Knowing that he in fact died for your sins. And he in fact rose, as we saw this morning, for your justification. When you were still rebelling and hating God, this is how you live. Knowing that you can't do any of this. You can't do a spot of it. You can't pursue him. You can't grow in the word. You can't submit to his teachings. You can't be part of a faith-filled community. By your own strength. It must be his. And this is how you will live. 
as God said through Zechariah, not by my, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, I will rebuild my temple by his power, by his strength, and by his spirit. By the work of Christ and the gospel of grace exercised daily in your life, you've been called to live. Every day. Every day. God's story will end exactly as he has foretold. Creation, fall, redemption in Christ. He is the author. It's his storyline. It will come to its consummation at the great return of our Lord. And it doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe or what we testify to. That's how it will play out. And so again, and I'll leave you with this, the consummate question is for you and for me and all those who profess Christ, what is your role? What is your part in this grand story? Who are you in it? Your life. Because you're being written into the story right now, at this very moment. Last week, your life was being written into the story. This week coming up will be written into the story. And it will be retold for all eternity. What role are you taking? What character have you assumed? By God's grace, we're going to get a chance to look at each of these as we look at this prophecy. Will you be one who sings? And I'll close with this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Will that be your story? By God's grace, it will be. Let's pray. What a story, Father. How amazing, Lord, that you engage a man, a people, so rebellious, so stiff-necked. The very ones responsible for making an absolute mess of your grand story. You set after with great passion and desire to redeem. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray for myself that we would see the story clearly. That we would hear the prophet Zechariah speak to us individually and as a church. That we would see, Lord, that we live in times very similar where there's much rebellion and much discouragement and much darkness. Yet even in the midst of this darkness, Lord, you are working in a radical way. You are calling us to return to you. By your grace and your power, we will. And in return, be blessed. And in return, glorify your name. I pray, Lord, that over these next several weeks, you would give us wisdom, sobriety, to hear your word through the prophet Zechariah, and that you would grow us in Christ's name.